0: Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who had, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Then, when the other servants saw that what had happened, they were outraged and went out and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servants in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all the debt you owe because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. So that's 1 Corinthians 13.
1: If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophecy in part, But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word.
2: Well, good morning. We are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And today we get to that little phrase there. Love keeps no record of wrongs. But to understand what that means a bit more, we will turn back. To Matthew 18. But before we get going, let me lead us as we pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank you that we, we come to you as one who is very much in the business of forgiveness. We find that hard. Uh, there may be uh, amongst us this morning uh, things that we're just irritated by and haven't let go. There may be very deep hurts that we can't let go. But Father, you are the one who is able to forgive all things through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us understand more of what that means in order that we might be like him. We ask it in Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Now, like many, once a month I get a bank statement and uh, it gets a cursory glance when the bank statement comes through the post. And uh, just a cursory glance and you think... "Mm." disappointingly small and then you uh, put it away or, or you may get a credit card statement and you, again, normally a more cursory glance and hmm, disappointingly large uh, and then you put that away uh, and we don't really, well certainly I don't engage deeply, deeply with these things and then every so often my bank very kindly, no doubt out of the goodness of their generous hearts, uh, my bank uh, send me a text and says, oh just to let you know you're over your limit. That's kind of them, I guess, in in some senses. Now, at that moment in time, I will go and reach for a statement online, and I will investigate that statement, and I will find where the record of wrongs is in that particular statement, and uh, which of the there are only two cardholders, which of the two of us. (laughs) And my memory is not good, and often it is me. Love has no record. So 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. For those who know such things, it's an accounting term, legitsamai. Uh, it's a quite an important Bible word, you'd have to say. Uh, early in the year, we looked at fundamental truth in Romans 3 and 4. Uh, our faith in Jesus Christ is counted as righteousness, is counted, is uh, reckoned, is, you might say here, recorded as. So here's an accounting term. Love doesn't have a mental book, a mental list in which it scribbles down. 21st of May, 1981, Alistair Barron said this to me. You know, 19th of December, 2005, Maggie Plant said this to me. It doesn't keep a record, there is. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, did we know one another in 1980? I don't think we did. The um, uh, it has no mental book. There's no mental list. Now that is hard sometimes. I guess you and I know instinctively. When someone wrongs us, we treat it a little bit like. Well, a good cameraman. At, a football match. We slightly replay it from seven different angles. Let's just make sure we've really understood how awful they were to me this morning. And we replay it. And we replay it. And uh, the, our favorite angle is the super slow-mo. We really go through it to understand quite how annoying or bad someone had been. Or it's a bit like a scab. Something done, someone does something wrong to us. Uh, and there's a little wound. But we keep returning to the scab and keep picking it. And picking it. And so eventually there's a sort of permanent mark because we just won't let it go. And we can be like that in our memories. Someone wrongs us and we just replay it and replay it and replay it until there's a sort of channel or groove in our minds that scars us. But love does not do that, love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, if you're joining us just for today, uh, we've slowed uh, right down in our study of the scriptures in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and we're spending a few weeks here. And uh, these just 13 verses, which you may or may not have heard before, you may or may not have had them read at a wedding or such a thing. But Paul essentially uh, talks about the necessity of love in 1 to 3. He talks about the permanence of love at the end of the chapter 8 to 13. But these middle verses, verses 4 to 7, you get a definition of love. Although, that might be a slightly misleading term. Because when Paul says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It's not that he's gone out a blank sheet of paper and thought, well, how do I define love in the abstract? It's not that. You might think if he'd done that, he'd have gone for something like sacrifice. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That sort of of sense of love. Because what Paul is doing here is not defining love, but he's applying it into a church which is not very kind or loving. He's already told them earlier in this letter that they are proud, chapter 4, jealous, chapter 3, arrogant, chapter 4, boastful, chapter 5. They lack forgiveness in chapter 6. They're puffed up with pride, chapter 8, on and on it goes. So when he says here, love is patient, and you are not. Love is kind, and you are not. Love keeps no record of wrongs, and golly, you do. That's the point of what he's saying. But these, uh, these four verses, verses four to seven, this application, uh, if you've been here, we've said probably about a third of them deal with the whole area of pride. So love is pa- uh, love. Uh, excuse me. doesn't boast, isn't proud, doesn't dishonor others. About a third of them with pride. You might say about a third of them deal with perseverance and keeping going. So love is patient, it always protects, it always perseveres. But then you've got another third or so, which... Seem to stand out on their own. And here is one of them. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love, to express it positively, forgives. Love forgives. Now we could trace that theme through the letter of 1 Corinthians, but I think for our purposes today, do turn back with me to Matthew chapter 18, on page 985. Because Jesus tells a very helpful story. About the nature of forgiveness and how you can forgive. Before we jump in there, let me just, I just want to throw out the, the two little caveats on this thing of forgiveness. Probably the, the two questions I think I get asked most about uh, more than anything else. Uh, let me just throw them out. One, forgiveness is both a, a decision and a promise. So someone offends you. You can't wait until you feel like forgiving them. You're commanded to forgive if you're a Christian. And so if someone offends you greatly this morning, you need to resolve and decide, I forgive them. And promise that I'll forgive them again when I remember it tomorrow. So you forgive someone today, and then tomorrow morning you think, golly, they really were rude, weren't they? You forgive them again. And on Wednesday you think, sure, the more I think about that, no, I forgive them Again. That's forgiveness. It's a decision. You do it, but it's hard, isn't it? And these things keep bubbling up. Yeah, yeah, yes. You just keep on doing it. You've promised to do that. Okay, it's a promise, and sorry, a decision and a promise. That means you can get on with it straight away. And second little caveat: this one is the one that I guess causes more confusion. Forgiveness doesn't remove consequences. So you, maybe you lend your car to someone, and every time you lend your car to someone, it comes back with a bump, or a f- the bumper is missing, or a window is missing and smashed. Every time you lend it to someone, it comes back with a massive dent or something smashed. And um, you say, look, I forgive you, and you pay the damages. And every, the fourth time, I forgive you, you pay the damages. At some point, you get to the point where you say, look, I forgive you, I've paid for it, but you're not driving my car again. You need to go and have some lessons. You see, there's a difference between forgiveness and there's still consequences to to that. There may be some outcome. Or more seriously, and this is where it cuts, I think, in these sort of arenas or issues, a man whose wife has an affair and he says to her, I forgive you, but it will take time for trust to rebuild between us. And she says, well, if you've forgiven me, you'll trust me. And, well, it doesn't quite work like that emotionally. There's forgiveness. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to repeat it. I'm not going to mention it again. But we're back to like when we were dating in terms of trust. It's got to rebuild a little bit. And that's just fair and normal. I'll ask about them later if you, if, you, if you desire. Okay, Matthew chapter 18. It's uh, towards the end of a section uh, when Jesus has been uh, describing discipleship, what it looks like to be a member of his kingdom, uh, as it happens in all five major sections of Matthew's Gospel, the, the last story or the last incident is always a, uh, one which shows, it has division in it. It shows the nature of true and false discipleship. Every section of Matthew's Gospel tends to end on that, and, and this one does too. Look, if you can't forgive, are you really a believer is where he's going to go with it. But let's work our way through. Chapter 18 and verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Well, the scholars will tell you that the sort of standard consensus of the rabbis of the time was it was, it was good to forgive people three times. That was what was really expected of you. So Peter, you know, he's been learning one or two things from Jesus, so uh, there's no obvious immediate conversation before this, as it were. So Peter comes up to Jesus and says, so uh, shall I forgive someone seven times? Pretty good, huh? Uh, you know, the rabbis say three, but I'm I'm on it. I'm, I'm sort of thinking in those terms. I, maybe that sort of sense to it. And Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, 77 times. Now, that isn't random as a number. It's not that Jesus likes the 11 times table uh, and just runs with it in those sense. It has cropped up in the Bible before this sort of parallel. So in Genesis, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, really, Genesis chapter 4, God has promised Cain that he would protect him. And if anyone tries to do anything wrong to Cain, he will defend him or, or retaliate seven times so no one touches Cain. Now, Lamech is a bad guy in the Bible. Lamech says to his wives, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, I have killed a man who wounded me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is 77fold. So he's a man who goes for sort of grotesque revenge. A young man struck me, I killed him. It's slightly mafioso logic. You hurt me, I kill you, I kill your mother, I kill your mother's mother. It's that sort of, I go over the top, you don't mess with me. I retaliate if anyone offends me. And so Jesus is wanting to turn that sort of mindset on its head. What do I do if someone offends me, Jesus? How many times do I have to uh, uh, forgive someone who sins against me? Jesus says... Well, you never retaliate. You always act to forgive. You put aside your self-defensiveness. Golly. Well, how do I do that? Implicit. Verse 23. Therefore. It's as if Peter is unspoken, says, what? 70, always forgive someone, in other words? Jesus, therefore, let me explain how that works. Here is how you can forgive someone, even when they repeatedly upset, offend, sin against you. And here's where we come to this story. Look, perhaps it's helpful to look at it in these three ways. Uh, Love cancels vast debts. I wanted to say unlove, but that makes no sense. So here's the contrast. Love cancels vast debts, 23 to 27. Selfishness demands payment, 28 to 30. And here's the implication of the story. If you know forgiveness, that's got to produce forgiveness. Let's work our way through it. First, then, verses 23 to 27. Love cancels vast debts. Verse 23 of Matthew 18. Therefore, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Who wanted to settle accounts with his servants? As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered he and his wife and his children, and all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. 10,000 bags of gold. Now that sounds like quite a lot of money. How much money is that? Well, it's a few little clues uh, in the footnotes. It's literally 10,000 talents. A talent's worth about 20 years of a day's laborer's wages. Yes, you can work that out from uh, Matthew chapter 20, really. So if you were earning a little below the national average, say you were earning 25,000 pounds a year. Well, a talent, 20 times that, that's half a million pounds. Now you've got to multiply it by 10,000 I think I'm right saying that's five billion pounds. A man owed his master five billion pounds. That is the GDP of the Bahamas, if you wanted to know. In other words, a man owes a ludicrous amount of money. And it may be that is Jesus's point. This little word, 10,000 back, it's, it's the, in Greek, you can't get it, it's the sort of the word for the largest number possible. So it is as if Jesus is saying, a man owes his master trillions of pounds. Gazillions, is that even a word? People use it, I don't know. A man owes his master gazillion pounds. In other words, uh, just a ridiculous sum of money that he could never pay. I don't know how. We don't know how we got into that debt. Now verse 25, I don't think the master's getting angry. We're not told the, the, the tone of voice at all, but he is just stating facts. He's being plain and honest about the size of the debt. He wants the man to realize the trouble he's in. So the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now verse 26, the servant doesn't quite get it. As this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Really? What sort of payment plan are you thinking you're going to go for here? Your monthly repayments on a mortgage of five billion are a lot, even with base rates being low. This is ridiculous. What, what 100 pounds a month? What are you talking about, man? You're never going to be able to repay this. He still hasn't quite got it. And yet despite this, verse 27, here is forgiveness. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now that is outrageous mercy. You, that is an extravagant mercy act of forgiveness, no matter how wealthy you are, if someone owes you five billion pounds and you write it off, that is a lot of money. You know, Roman Abramovich, Chelsea owner, he's worth nine and a half billion, something like that. To write off five billion, even he is going to notice that in his bank account. I don't care who you are, this is a lot of money and that's Jesus's point. This king is sensationally kind, compassionate, generous. He forgives the man, his debts. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, if you are going to forgive someone who sins against you repeatedly, you do need to know that you owe a debt that you could never pay. Here is the key, Peter, to understanding how you can forgive beyond what is humanly natural. You owe a debt You could never pay. The king has paid it for you, Peter. Now, we'll come back to that. Uh, Love cancels vast debts. Second thing, oh dear, it goes a bit wrong, that selfishness demands payment. I want to say unlove, but it's not a word. Unlove demands payment. It doesn't work, does it? Verse 28, but this same servant who's just been forgiven let off his debt. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. Pause. What's that? Again, the footnote is helpful. Uh, It's uh, 100 silver coins or denarii. That then is uh, one denarius is about a day's work. So 100 is about a third of a year's salary. So 8,000 pounds, you might say. 9,000 pounds, something like that. Verse 28. A servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him 8,000 pounds. Now, I'm relieved at this point that Jesus makes it a significant sum of money. It's not that this servant goes out and finds someone who owes him a fiver and throttles him and says, you must pay me back a fiver. Because we'd all think, idiot, let him off a fiver. You've just been let off five billion pounds. But eight thousand pounds, if someone owed you or me, well, I don't know about you, but if someone owed me eight thousand pounds, I would have a record of it. Somewhere, I would have a legal document. You owe me 8,000 pounds. That's a lot of money. I do a lot with 8,000 pounds. It's not insignificant. And so Jesus is saying, Look, I'm not saying it's easy to forgive. When someone has wronged you, there is is pain there. Very glad. He puts a significant sum. He's not saying that forgiveness is easy. But the nasty servant, well, he shows no patience. So verse 28, he grabbed him, began to choke this other guy. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Well, that's very striking. Look at the language, verse 28. Sorry, verse 29. He fell to his knees, begged him, be patient with me. Isn't it striking? This is exactly what the nasty servant had done in verse 26. Fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged. And you might have thought that a little bell would go off in this nasty servant's head. Hold on a minute. He's doing what I did 10 minutes ago. And I was let off 5 billion. You would have thought the little bell goes off at his head. But he's forgotten He's not dwelling on what's happened to him. It's just this thing in front of him, the debt in front of him. He demands payment. Now, look, Let me try and ground that a little bit. What does, what does that look like? What does it look like, keeping a record of, of wrongs, not forgiving for, for you and for me? Well, look, here's a sort of common scenario-ish. A wife criticizes her husband in public in front of a few others, Puts her husband down. That is not a good thing to do. Later on, they get home, and the husband says, Do you know what you said in church in front of everyone else? That is typical of you. That is what you always do. Do you remember the time two years ago when you humiliated me in front of your parents? Do you remember that? Do you remember the time even on our wedding day six years ago where you were a little unkind publicly? And the wife says, so what, two years ago, six years ago, what do do we, sorry, what are we, what are we talking about here? Now what has happened there? Well, he was hurt at some time in the past, six years ago, two years ago. And he's replayed those things in his mind. He's created a, a, a groove in his memories, a channel in his memories And so they pop back up again. And he wants her to feel the pain. He wants to retaliate. He has clearly kept a record of wrongs. And now he says, right, now you've wronged me again. There's the list. And out he brings his list of all these things that have happened. Because what happens if you keep a list of wrongs that someone has done against you, whenever they do anything that annoys you, out comes the list. You view people through a certain prism or lens. So, uh, at work, at some point this week, your boss, a client, whatever it is, your boss says, uh, you make a suggestion, and he sort of blanks you and ignores it. But you've kept a record of every time he's done that in the past. So you say, that is so typical of you, you are arrogant. Well, that might be true. Or he may just at that moment have been thinking, did I turn the oven off this morning and just been distracted? But you view him through a certain lens. You can only think of him in those terms, arrogant. Well, let me try to give you a, a, a visual picture. The EU and the blessed referendum uh, that uh, dominates the, the media with its erudite discussion of, uh, of uh, which war happens first, etc., etc. Now, every so often, I've even been reading these, these accounts, of course, uh, people will say, well, we'll be a bit like Norway, so it be a bit like Norway. Now, I have just observed this week. Oops, let's go to the first one. Observed this week. Whenever a comparison is made with Norway in a newspaper, they always have a photograph of some fjords. <laughs> they are not talking geographical features. They are not talking about the beauty. They are not talking about tourism. It's just one of those mental things. You work for a newspaper, Norway. Fjord. That's what you do. So it doesn't matter. So there's just one. There it is. Beautiful, beautiful. We're talking about four reasons the UK can't copy Norway. Fjord. Or the other one. I just gave you two examples. You can get them all. The Norway option. What does it mean? It means fjord. That's what it means. What about the fact that Norway has a massive oil industry or a massive. Who cares about that? Don't put a photo of an oil rig. Norway. Fjord. That's just what we do in this country. That's all we can sort of tolerate to think about about the Norwegians. Blessings upon them. The, um, and we can do that with people. He is arrogant and always puts me down. So, a very innocent request. Oh, did, did you see that email I sent this morning? He's doing it again. No, no, he's not. You've just kept a record of wrongs and therefore you view someone always through that lens. So, it works. Love doesn't do that. Selfishness demands payment. Always wants to retaliate. But I guess the question you want to ask in Matthew 18 is this. How can it be that this nasty servant, he's been let off five billion pounds, but he chokes someone to get 8,000? How do you do do that? What's gone so wrong here? And Jesus' answer is, He never understood what it meant to be forgiven in the first place. So 31 to 35, is the implication of it. Knowing forgiveness must produce forgiveness. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in, And here's the diagnosis. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt, five billion pounds of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Shouldn't that have affected you? You've acted as if you have no idea how kindly you've been treated you've got no sense of wonder delight pleasure no no sense of how great it is to be forgiven and that, bizarre you've behaved as if you were really entitled to my generosity to you no inability to forgive i just trying to ground it a little bit for you and for me i guess it, that flows out of a few mistakes if we are unable to forgive others? Suggest a few. One, you've just forgotten who the king is. I think that can be the case. When I refuse to forgive someone, I'm acting as if I'm the king. I forgive my place in this story of the world. I forget that Jesus is king. I forget how he's treated me. I think I'm king. Whereas if I remember who he is, I live in his kingdom, that does change everything you've got to remember whose kingdom it is a second thing maybe you focused on the wrong debt and that's easy to do the the debt that you and i owe god because of our selfishness our sin our rejection of him is vast but it is over there it's sort of eternal it's future it's separation from god forever and we can sort of push it off into the distance whereas if someone annoys us today it's here it's right in front of me. So it is much easier to see the thing which is here, even than the massive thing which is over there. Look, here is a, here is a, a brick. It's just a little brick. Just stole it from the, um, uh Here's a little brick. It's much easier for me to see this than the shard. The shard is bigger than this. You'd have observed. But it's not here in front of me. Of course, that's part of it, isn't it? But the third thing, of course, the most important, or most common thing, I guess, for you and for me, if we're struggling to forgive, we've just never understood or dwelt upon the size of our debt before God. And when you do that, Oh, you can forgive. When we understand that how we've treated him is terrible, it's much easier to forgive others. When I dwell upon the ingratitude, my ingratitude excuse me, my ingratitude to the one who gave me life, my failure to acknowledge him and all he's given me, my deliberate refusal to do the right thing, and yet his patience. His patience, his willingness to pay my debt through Jesus Christ. Punishment I deserve. His constancy in the face of my fickleness. His refusal to keep a record of my wrongs despite me adding to them day by day. When I dwell upon my sin, his generosity. That is the dominant, the, the shard comes before me and I can't even see this because the shard blocks it out. I can't see, anywhere near. I have to focus on what I need, forgiveness from God. Let me try to give you one illustration, but we're we're damn really. Look, I'm sure there are many, many times, you might be able to list them if you can, keep no record, stop it. But uh, there are many times when I've been silly and I've been petty and not forgiving people. There is actually one incident in my life that stands out for me. And of course, there's a danger in repeating it that I sort of stir things up again. But let me do it for the sake of clarity. Look, uh, two and a half years ago or so, uh, there was the day when the courts ruled that the little girl we thought we'd adopted was going to be taken away from us after a year and taken to to, uh, to Vienna. Now, having this girl had lived with us for a year, we thought she was our daughter. It was devastating, as some of you will know. Just devastating. As soon as the court registered its verdict and I was told, I told my three closest friends... Two of them phoned me within the next couple of minutes. Left messages if one was on the phone. The other didn't phone. The other didn't write. He didn't visit. And actually, in the middle of our pain at that moment, his betrayal of 20 plus years of friendship was almost the most painful thing in the whole scenario. I was so angry with him. And to my enormous shame, and this is a hope, this is a horrible thing for a Christian minister to admit, really, it was a year before I could pick up the phone to him. And he sort of hadn't contacted me because he knew he'd done wrong and he was a bit embarrassed, so never picked up. It was a year. That's terrible. No, actually it, was, it felt like a big deal. It felt like a big betrayal. But what happened at the end of the year, what I started to do practically in my heart, what I knew cognitively in my head, I need to focus not on his sin towards me, his betrayal of our friendship. I I need to focus on my betrayal of God, my ongoing betrayal in one sense of Jesus Christ as I declare him my lord and yet still do things day by day that he would disprove of of course he would call sin and then you think okay okay i have been shown wonderful kindness forgiveness i can do that There is an ultimate sense to Jesus' words here, verses 34 and 35. In anger, the master handed him, the the wicked servant, over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly Father will treat you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Look, there's an ultimate sense. An inability to forgive suggests that you've never really understood the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus Christ. You've just not understood it, ultimately, ultimately. Jesus would say elsewhere, blessed are those who are merciful, they will be shown mercy. Here he says, unblessed are those who are unmerciful. You don't, under, you don't If you can't show forgiveness, you don't really know it. Let me be clear. He's talking not about a precondition. You don't have to forgive everyone before you become a Christian. It's an after condition. If you're a Christian, you will be able to forgive. Please hear me clearly on that. Don't say... I cannot forgive this person who wronged me in the past. Therefore, I cannot become a Christian. No, become a Christian and God will give you the power to forgive. That's how it works. But if you're a Christian and you're struggling to forgive someone, something, you need to look at the size of your debt before the Lord. Understand the size of your debt, the size of God's mercy that gives you a power to forgive that is bewildering, surprising perhaps even to you. When we dwell on our sin before the Lord, when we dwell upon his generosity in coming down in the Lord Jesus Christ and paying all our debt, we can forgive others. Let me do this in prayer. Uh, Father, I don't want in any sense to uh, shrink, belittle the pain people have felt here at how they've been treated by others. Uh, senses of uh, betrayal, anger. Uh, thank you, even in this story, the, the, the wrong is, is significant to the tune of 8,000 pounds. And yet, Father, compared to the debt we owe you, compared to your generosity in paying all, the, all of our debt, all that we've done wrong, all that sense which would cut us off from you for eternity, that you've paid that debt for us. We're dwelling upon that, put a smile upon our faces, put forgiveness in our own hearts so we might forgive others the wrong they've done us. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.